Chapter 15 of Starman's Quest. This LibriVox recording is in the public domain. Starman's Quest by Robert Silverberg. Chapter 15. Alan sat very quietly in the empty apartment that had once belonged to Hawkes, and he stared at nothing in particular. It was five hours since the abortive robbery. He was alone. The news had been blared out over every form of communication there was. He knew the story by heart. A daring robbery had been attempted, but police detection methods had yielded advanced warning, and the robbers had been frustrated. The roboguards had been specially equipped ones, which could shift to an alternate wavelength in case of emergency. They had blinked out only momentarily. And special guards had been posted within the bank, ready to charge out. Bing and Hawks had tried to block the doorway, and they had been shot down. Hawks was killed instantly. Bing died an hour later in the hospital. At least two other members of the gang had been apprehended, Jensen and Smith, both trapped by the roboguards. It was known that at least two other men, and possibly more, had participated in the attempt, and these were being traced now. Alan was not worried. He had not been within a hundred feet of the crime, and it had been easy for him to slip away unnoticed. The others had had little difficulty either. Weber, Hollis, Kovac, McGuire, and Freeman. There was a chance that Hollis or Kovac had been recognized. In that case, they could be tracked down by Televector. But Alan was not registered on the Televector screens and there was no other way of linking him with the crime. He glanced around the apartment at Hawk's bar and his audio system and all the dead man's other things. Yesterday, Alan thought, Hawks had been here, alive, eyes sparkling as he outlined the plans for his robbery a final time. Now he was dead. It was hard to believe that such a many-sided person could have been snuffed out so soon, so quickly. A thought occurred. The police would be investigating the disposition of Hawk's property. They would want to know the relationship between Hawk's and Alan, and perhaps there would be questions asked about the robbery. Alan decided to forestall that. He reached for the phone. He would call security, tell them he had been living with Hawk's, and that he had heard of the gambler's sudden violent death and in all innocence ask for details. He would... The door announcer chimed. Alan whirled and put down the receiver. Reaching out, he flicked on the door screen and was shown a view of a distinguished-looking middle-aged man in the silver-gray uniform of the police. So soon, Alan thought, I didn't even get a chance to call. Who is it? he asked in a surprisingly even voice. Inspector Gaynor of Global Security. Alan opened the door. Inspector Gaynor smiled warmly, walked in, took the seat that Alan offered him. Alan felt tense and jumpy, and hoped not too much of it showed. The security man said, Your name is Alan Donnell, isn't it? And you're a free status man, unregistered, employed as a professional gamesman, Class B? Alan nodded. That's right, sir. Gaynor checked a notation on a pad he carried. I suppose you've heard that the man who lived here, Max Hawks, was killed in an attempted robbery this morning? Yes, sir. 
I heard it a little while ago on the newscasts. I'm still a little shaken up. W would you care for a drink, Inspector? Not on duty, thanks, Gaynor said cheerfully. Tell me, Alan, how long did you know Max Hawkes? Since last May, I'm an ex-star man. I jumped ship. Max found me wandering around the city and took me in. But I never knew anything about any robberies, Inspector. Max kept his mouth pretty well sealed most of the time. When he left here this morning, he said he was going to the bank to make a deposit. I never thought... He stopped, wondering whether he sounded convincing. At the moment, a long jail sentence, or worse, seemed inevitable. And the worst part of it was that he had not wanted to take place in the robbery. Indeed, he had not taken part, but in the eyes of the law he was undoubtedly as guilty as any of the others. Gaynor raised one hand. Don't misunderstand, son. I'm not here as a criminal investigator. We don't suspect you had any part in the attempt. Then why? He drew an envelope from his breast pocket and unfolded the papers it contained. I knew Max pretty well, he said. About a week ago he came to see me and gave me a sealed envelope, which was to be opened only in the event of his death on this particular day, and to be destroyed unopened otherwise. I opened it a few hours ago. I think you ought to read it. With trembling fingers, Alan took the sheaf of papers and scanned them. They were neatly typed. Alan recognized the blocky purple characters of the voice right Hawks kept in his room. He started to read. The document explained that Hawks was planning a bank robbery to take place on Friday, October 3, 3876. He named none of his accomplices. He went on to state that one, Alan Donnell, an unregistered ex-starman, was living with him, and that this Alan Donnell had no knowledge whatsoever of the intended bank robbery. Furthermore, Hawkes added, in the event of my death in the intended robbery, Alan Donnell is to be sole heir and a sign of my worldly goods. This supersedes and replaces any and all wills and testaments I may have made at any past time. Appended was a schedule of the properties Hawks was leaving behind. Accounts in various savings banks totaled some three-quarters of a million credits. Besides that, there were scattered investments, real estate holdings, bonds. The total estate, Hawks estimated, was worth slightly over one million credits. When Alan finished, he looked up, startled and white-faced, at the older man. "'All of this mine?' "'You're a pretty rich young man,' Gaynor agreed. "'Of course there are formalities. The will has to be probated and contested, and you can expect it to be contested by somebody. If you still have the full estate when the courts get through with you, you'll be all right.' Alan shook his head uncomprehendingly. The way he wrote this, it's as if he knew. Hawks always knew, Gaynor said gently. He was the best hunchman I've ever seen. It was almost as if he could see a couple of days into the future all the time. Sure, he knew. And he always knew it was safe to leave this document with me, that he could trust me not to open it. Imagine announcing a week ahead of time that you're going to rob a bank, 
and then turning the announcement over sealed to a police officer. Alan started. The police officer had known about the robbery in advance. That was how Max and the Dream Duster Bing had been killed. Had Gaynor been the one who had betrayed them? Had he opened the sealed envelope ahead of time and sent Max to his death? No, it was inconceivable that this soft-spoken man would have done such a thing. Alan banished the thought. Max knew he was going to be killed, he said, and yet he went ahead with it. Why? Maybe he wanted to die, Gaynor suggested. Maybe he was bored with life, bored with always winning, bored with things as they were. The man was never born who could figure out Max Hawks anyway. You must have found that out yourself. Gaynor rose. I'll have to be moving along now, but let me give you some suggestions first. Sir? Go downtown and register yourself in free status. Have them give you a televector number. You're going to be an important person when you get all this money. And be very careful about who your friends are. Max could take care of himself. You may not be so lucky, son. Is there going to be an investigation of the robbery? Alan asked. It's underway already. You may be called down for some questioning, but don't let it worry you. I turned a copy of Max's will over to them today, and that exonerates you completely. It was strangely empty in the apartment that night. Alan wished Gaynor had stayed longer. He walked through the dark rooms, half expecting Max to come home. But Max wasn't coming home. Alan realized he had been tremendously fond of Hawks. He had never really shown it. He had never demonstrated much warmth toward the gambler, especially in the final days when they both lived under the pressure of the planned robbery. But Alan knew he owed much to Hawks, rogue and rascal though he was. Hawks had been basically a good man, gifted, too gifted perhaps, whose drives and passions led him beyond the boundaries of society. And at thirty-five he was dead, having known in advance that his day was at hand. The next few days were busy ones. Alan was called to security headquarters for questioning, but he insisted he knew nothing about the robbery or Hawks' friends, and the document Hawks had left seemed to bear him out. He was cleared of all complicity in the robbery. Next he went to Central Directory Matrix and registered in free status. He was given a televector transmitter. It was surgically embedded in the fleshy part of his thigh, and he accepted a drink from fat old Heinz Macintosh in remembrance of Hawks. He spoke briefly with Macintosh about the process of collecting on Hawks' estate, and learned it was a complex process, but nothing to be afraid of. The will was being sent through channels now. He met Hollis in the street several days later. The bloated loansman looked pale and harried, and his skin hung flabbily over his bones now. Little as Alan liked the loansman, he insisted on taking him to a local restaurant for lunch. "'How come you're still hanging around York City?' Alan asked. "'I thought the heat was on for any of Max's old buddies.' "'It is,' Hollis said, wiping sweat from his white, shiny forehead. "'But so far I'm in the clear.' There won't be much of an investigation. 
They killed two and caught two, and that'll make them happy. After all, the robbery was a failure. Any notion why it failed? Hollis nodded. Sure, I have a notion. It was Kovac who tipped them off. Mike? But he looked okay to me. And to everybody, but he owed Bryson a lot, and Bryson was anxious to dispose of Max. So Kovac turned the plans of the robbery over to Bryson's boys, in exchange for a quit-claim on the money he owed, and Bryson just forwarded it all on to the police. They were waiting for us when we showed up. That cleared Gainer, Alan thought in some relief. How did you find this all out? Bryson himself told me. What? I guess he didn't know exactly who besides Max was in on the deal. Anyway, he certainly didn't know I was part of the group, Hollis said. Old man Bryson was laying off some bets with me, and he let something slip about how he tipped the police to Max. Then he told me the whole thing. And Kovac? Dead, Hollis said bluntly. Bryson must have figured that if he'd sell Max out, he'd sell anybody out, so Kovac got taken care of. He was found yesterday. Heart failure, the report said. Bryson has some good drugs. Say, kid, any word yet on what's going to happen to all Max's dough? Alan thought a moment before replying. I haven't heard a thing. I guess the government inherits it? That would be too bad, Hollis said speculatively. Max was well loaded. I'd like to get my hands on some of that dough myself. So would Bryson and his bunch, I'd bet. Alan said nothing. When he was through eating, he paid the check and left. Hollis headed north, Alan south. In three days, Hawk's will would go through the courts. Alan wondered if Bryson, who seemed to be York City's major criminal syndicate man, would try to angle some share of Max's money. A Bryson man did show up at the hearing, a slick-looking operator named Berwin. His claim was that Hawks had been affiliated with Bryson for a number of years, and that Hawks' money should revert to Bryson for virtue of an obscure law of the last century, involving the estates of professional gamblers killed in criminal actions. The robocomputer who was in charge of the hearing pondered the request a few moments. Then relays clicked, and the left-hand panel on the computer face lit up with a bright red application denied signal. Berwin spoke for three minutes, ending up with a request that the robocomputer disqualify itself from the hearing and allow itself to be replaced by a human judge. The computer's decision was even quicker this time. Application denied. Berwin tossed Alan's side of the courtroom a black look and yielded ground. Alan had engaged a lawyer recommended once by Hawks, a man named Jesperson. Briefly and concisely, Jesperson cited Alan's claim to the money, read the terms of the will, and stepped back. The computer considered Jesperson's plea for a few moments, reviewing the brief which the lawyer had taped and fed into the computer earlier. Time passed. Then the green panel lit, and the words, Application, granted. Alan smiled. Bryson had been defeated. Max's money was his. Money that could be turned toward intensified research on the hyperdrive. Well, son, Jesperson asked, how does it feel? 
to be a millionaire. End of chapter 15